I have been thinking a lot about the elders in our field. It started a couple years ago when Carrie Bentley Quinn mentioned I should interview Tina Howe. Since that conversation, I have been considering who I want to talk to so I can selfishly spend time with playwrights who have blazed a trail before us, but also to create the time capsule of them for future playwrights to stumble on. Then. I heard the sad news about Christopher Durang and his withdrawal from public life due to his aphasia diagnosis. The time is ticking on us all. I just finished reading the book Stretching My Mind, a collection of Edward Albee essays and interviews. I feel like I got a sense of who he was but still wonder what a private one-on-one conversation with him would be like. My wondering is for not because he passed away several years ago, but I have this book and his plays and other interviews he gave over the years. He would likely say all we need to know is right there on the page. I recently reached out to a playwriting hero of mine to see if they would be interested in talking to me. I have to say it was a thrill just to get an email response from them, but unfortunately they said no and I get it. You spend decades writing and talking about writing and eventually you might grow tired of it all. I'm still going to reach out to those heroes out there because there is so much to learn from them and I know these time capsules will mean something to folks in the future. Like I said, the time is ticking on us all and we will all be elders at some point. Every playwright I talk to now is a time capsule containing their wisdom and their story for posterity. If you believe in the multiverse, we are all new writers, mid-career, and elders everywhere all at once. It's mathematically impossible to do so, but I dream of spending time with every playwright out there to get their story on the record. Is that something the multiverse can fix? I don't actually know how that works. I do know the minute hand of my clock only moves forward, and each year we are all older. Tick, tick, tick. So, this message is for you, future playwright. Listen to these stories. Read their plays. These are the writers who blaze the trail you are on. And one day, you too will be looked toward for wisdom and to share the story of you. For the record. Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. Each month in the subtext, I talk to another playwright about their life and try to get to what makes them tick. This month, I am sharing a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning playwright James Iams. For first time listeners, you can stream all of our old episodes at americantheater.org. They stretch all the way back to January of 2018, and there are some gems in there, so you are in for a treat. If you're interested in such things, you can follow us on the social media channels. There are other podcasts with subtext in the title, but we are the only THE subtext. James Iams is a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, a director, and educator. James' plays have been produced by Flashpoint Theatre Company, Orbiter 3, Theatre Horizon, Wilma Theatre, Theatre Exile, Azuka Theatre, The National Black Theatre, Jack, The Public Theatre, Hudson Valley Shakespeare Theater, Steppenwolf Theater, and several others. James is a 2015 Pew Fellow for Playwriting, the 2015 winner of the Terrence McNally New Play Award for White, the 2015 Kesserling Honorable Mention Prize winner for Ms. Martha, a 2017 recipient of the Whiting Award, and a 2019 Kesserling Prize for Kill Move Paradise. But there's more. James was also the 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner for drama for his play Fat Ham, which is starting previews on Broadway right now. His play Abandon is opening at Theater Exile in Philadelphia in April. James is a fantastic playwright, and I was honored to have time to speak with him. 
This conversation was recorded in January of 2023 over Zoom. Philadelphia? No, I came here for grad school in 2003. So I've been here for 20 years, but um, almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in August. Yeah. Um, but I'm originally from uh, a town in North Carolina called Bessemer City. Where in, uh, where in Carolina is that? That is about 30 minutes south of Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, I have a lot of, sh- I have a lot of family in Charlotte now. Uh, oh wow yeah yeah i i grew up in new hampshire and all my new hampshire family found charlotte in the past few years oh yeah it's wild i don't so when i go for holidays i go to charlotte to see family (laughs) in houses that are all new to me that i have no yeah to um wow it's, it's, it's pretty wild uh so what was like uh what was childhood like for you there? You know, where, like, uh, what were you into when you were a kid? Um, childhood was, you know, I was talking to my older sister about this. It was It was amazing. Like, um, we grew up in a very large family. So I always had grandmother, great-grandmother, grandfather, aunts, uncles, cousins around. And... Um, you know, I gr- I grew up in a family um, very uh, religious, but also very um, warm and like uh, like curious people. I grew mm-hmm. up with people who were curious. Um, I grew up with uh, surrounded by art. My mother always made sure that there was beautiful art on the walls. That we had access to like museums and my aunts would take us to like summer arts camps and my uncle um is a is a musician so he would make me these i remember this so vividly these um uh mixtapes of music Mm -hmm. that he liked and i cherish those so much because he had incredible still has incredible taste in music what was on those Um, tapes what did he introduce you to I mean, I remember I went through a Stevie Wonder phase that was kind of intense. Mm. I just wanted as much Stevie Wonder as I could get my hands on. Mm. Um, I remember I like made a list of like Mariah Carey songs and Whitney Houston songs and um, Anita Baker songs that I wanted. And he just like made an album of a bunch of that stuff. Um, So, you know, you know, I grew up with people who valued art. Then, yeah, you know, watching great TV, made sure we watched great movies. Um, they just were curious. That's the only way I can really describe, you know, what my family's like, and also very funny people. And so, um, you know, you're raised around people who are constantly making you laugh and making you smile. I played outside a ton. Um, you know, we we didn't have babysitters. We went to our grandmother's house. Or we went to our aunt's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I played outside of my grandmother's backyard until I was told I was too old to do that. Um, <laughs> or, or started to feel like I was too old to do that. She, My grandmother has this uh, huge rock in the back of her yard. And when I say huge, it's like, you know, it's probably about seven or eight feet long mm-hmm. and about, you know, four or five feet wide and we would turn it into a spaceship or a kitchen counter or I mean it was just a a play making um, thing and it was just this weird block of stone that had been quarried from somewhere nearby and my grandfather had brought a big hunk of and put it in the backyard it's still there wow Um, almost as big as it was when I was a kid it's just like you know an artifact so who you, um, who are you playing with did you you mentioned one sibling I had I um there were three of us my my younger sister passed away um in 2001 uh, sorry uh 2021 um and so there were three of us my older sister Dana and my younger sister Heather and then we had cousins um that were like first and second cousins um 
and you know we just played together we were like <laughs> i would say i was a little feral just like you know um lived to be outside lived to laugh lived to like be a little mischievous so it, you know it was a childhood of like wonder curiosity exploration um yeah back back then when you were this kid playing in your grandma's backyard was there a uh was there a thing you wanted to be um no i think the the earliest thing i can remember saying that i wanted to do was saying that I wanted to, for some reason I got into my head that I wanted to train horses. I've never even ridden a horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, but somehow I got into my head that that was a thing that I might want to do. Um, it wasn't really until I was in uh, high school and I started to study choral music that I was like, oh, I, I think, uh, you know, I graduated high school thinking I wanted to be a choral music teacher um, mm. because I just loved making a thing with a group of people. Yeah. Just, um, there was something about that. I loved singing. Um, I wasn't always the best singer, but I thought I could be a good teacher for people who wanted to sing together. Um, and so that, you know, really going to college and thinking I was going to be a music major and I was going to, conduct choral music and work at a high school or a middle school and um, had every intention of doing that <laughs> when I started. Um, and so that was the first time I, you know, I had in my head a career that I wanted to do. Um, and then I got to college and kind of realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So what not, what knocked you, what knocked you out of that trajectory? The theory was impossible. Like I couldn't get my head to understand. Oh yeah, it. Oh. and I was like super lazy. I didn't want to. You have to learn to play the piano to, to you know, do the concentration and <laughs> conducting. And I was like, I didn't really want to learn how to play the piano. I just wanted to like do a thing with a group of people. Um, and then my voice teacher was like, you know, you have a fine enough voice. You know, it's it's not about that. He's like, maybe you should um, audition for, I think, Clark Atlanta. I went to Morehouse College um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, Morehouse uh, has a, a world-famous glee club that I was a member of for a semester because um, I was very serious about this. And my voice teacher was like, they're doing Once on this Island at Clark Atlanta. You should, you should go audition for that. And I did, and I got in. And that was kind of it. Um, was this your first time performing? I mean, I performed in choir. I'd done solo in choir. I'd yeah. taken a drama class in high school and performed in front of the student body in that way. But I'd never thought of it as like a, a thing one does for a job. Um, Once on the sideline was the first time where I was like, oh, this is actually what it takes to put a show up. Mm. And I instantly fell in love with the, the sort of instant community that you make with people when you're cast in something, you instantly are like, oh, we're all together and we're, we all want to do this thing together. And I also really loved um, that it was music and like what I was discovering as acting. Um, and I kind of discovered that I was a, a pretty decent actor. I was pretty good at um taking the lines and making them feel like my own. And so that my sophomore year, this all happened in my first year of, of undergraduate, that sophomore year, I changed my my degree from, first it was music, then it was undeclared to, um, to drama. Mm. Are you still friends with people you met back then at Morehouse? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. One of my best friends in the world, uh, Jonice Abbott Pratt, um, I met when I was uh, taking classes and doing things at Clark Atlanta. Um, I'm still pretty close with some folks that were in the, the theater department at Spelman, where you took most of your classes, if you were at Morehouse, mm -hmm. you took most of your classes at Spelman. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, like, and and during that time I was there, there were some great folks there, you know. Um, uh, Kalia Booker was at Spelman when I was when I was in that department. Brian Tyree Henry was. I did three mm-hmm. shows with him while I was there. Um, Jason Durden and Brandon Durden um, mm. were were the, at Morehouse when I was there. So it was it was a moment when that department was like sort of uh, sparkling with a great deal of talent, and I still think it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I stay in touch with with most of those folks, um, even if it's just sort of casually like, "Hey, I, I see your life is amazing. Congratulations!" Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I. It, it, theater appeals to me in the same way that you like you you when you're doing a play you you develop this community and you develop this community really fast and and it feels very deep and uh and i ask about the friendship thing because i know that sometimes these things end and then you lose these connections right away because people move on to other to other things and uh it's like sometimes it's really sad for me because i'm like oh i really I really liked being with this person or these people. Yeah. And, and now I have to find a, another, another group to connect with. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of being an actor is that sort of um, turnover that you experience every time you move to a different project. Um, but in school, it felt different because you were, you were doing a show with the people, but you're also in class with them. So that yeah, you live yeah. with them. So um you know, those folks are, you know, I, I remember one of the first plays I wrote in school uh, was a play called Spin Cycle um, that um, uh, Joan East directed. And that's when we became really, really close is when she directed a play of mine. She, you know, um, Brian was in another play of mine that I did a, like a, a student production of. So like we some of those folks were present when I was just starting out and figuring out who I wanted to be as a writer before I even thought that that was a thing that I could do. Like, I still was very much like, well, I'm going to be an actor. You know, I'm going to work as an actor and, you know, try to figure that out. How did you, how did you have the wherewithal to say, ah, I'll I'll write a play. Like, where'd that come from? Well, when, when I was really young, my, my grandmother Actually, my, everybody in my family, and I want to just single her out, really encouraged me to to write because I think it was a way that I was, I was able to like metabolize how I was feeling because I was a kid with a lot of feelings. Mm. And um, I love comic books and comic books are essentially just like plays with pictures. <laughs> That's more reductive than I wanted it to sound <laughs> like. But, you know, it's... It is dialogue is a main function of the storytelling of a comic book with image. And um, that made sense to me, like telling a story through what people are saying to each other and what they're doing to each other made a lot of sense to me. So um, I wrote a play for my church when I was about 15. That's not very good, that no one will ever see. I think there's <laughs> one video of it somewhere. Um, but and my grandmother directed it and that's the first play I wrote. And I just kept playing with the form. I kept like writing little skits. Um, I would write poems that were in dialogue um, or like a poem that was speaking to a person. So they're essentially monologues. And um, when I became a theater major and I started working on plays and understanding plays as a performer inside of them, I was like, oh, I, I get more what you're supposed to do with how this is supposed to function. And so I just kept doing it mostly as a hobby. Um, and then probably about 10 years ago, I started to get kind of serious about um, sending things that I had written to to playpen to, to places where I felt like I could get some development and and learn a little bit um, because my degree is in acting. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, I'm pretty much a self-taught playwright and I taught myself by reading as many plays as I could get my hands on, watching as many plays as people would give me free tickets to and being in, in as many places I could get hired to act in. And that's, that's kind of how I learned how to, how a play works. 
So 10 years ago, you said roughly, what, what was it, what was happening in your life that, uh, you know, had you shift into focusing on that? Um, I had gotten a little disillusioned with acting. Um, I still really loved it, but, um, I was struggling to find things that felt very exciting for me to work on. And you don't have a ton of control over that. Right. <laughs> you're an actor, you know, yeah. you, you get to do the things that you're sort of cast in. Um, and I was also aging out of one type. I had spent most of my career playing very young. You know, I'm five, eight, mm. um, clean shaven. I probably look, you know, at any given moment in my life, about five years younger than I actually am. Um, and so I was sort of aging out of that. And there you know, I could tell by how the casting was going for me that people didn't really know well, what what do we mm. where do we put him? What do we do with him? He's not quite a dad yet. Um, but he's, you know, we can't reasonably cast him as, you know, an 18 year old or a 21 year old anymore. Where were you living so, at the time? In Philly. I've my entire professional career has been in Philly. I'd never moved to New York. I never moved to LA. Um, I stayed in Philadelphia, mostly mm -hmm. because I loved the work that was being made here, you know, mm -hmm. between the Wilma and Pig Iron and New Paradise Liberty Laboratories and the Arden, which is, you know, I think still the, the Arden Theater is the theater that I've worked for as an actor the most. Mm. Um, I just really liked being here and I liked the community and I got welcomed into the community. So it felt really good to, to stay. Who pointed but you to Philadelphia? Like, how did that happen in the first place? Grad school. I, I got accepted to Temple's MFA acting program and graduated and pretty much instantly started um, working um, oh, okay. in Philadelphia. So it was like, yeah. there's no reason to go anywhere, you know, I'm, right. you know, I'm, I'm making ends meet you know, combination of, I worked at the Constitution Center for many years doing work there. And um, it was flexible enough that I could like say, okay, I, I can't be here because I'm doing a show from here to here. Um, so it just, it just worked out. Um, but yeah, I was like in this moment where I was starting to sort of age out of the type that I'd been playing in. And um, I just was like, well, let's see, you know, while I'm, you know, uh, in this theater for young audience play playing a dog or whatever <laughs> um let me let me work on my writing and you know when i was i did angels in america at the wilma theater um my gosh 2011 maybe something like that and um i was fit no that's not even right i don't know when that show was Anyway, point is, um, I finished Miss Martha while I was in the dressing room every night because the Belize is in, you know, in Millennium Approaches, like what, 30 minutes tops. Mm -hmm. um, so I was backstage most of the show of a three hour long show. And so I wrote. And it's great to write when you have Tony Kushner getting piped into your ear. Like that's. Yeah. <laughs> what is that like? Awesome. Like, what is that yeah. like being inside that play and also yeah. writing a play? It took it took the doors off. It took it, it blew the windows off. I was like, oh, we got angels crashing through the ceiling. We have ghosts. Oh God. We have, yeah. you know, uh, AIDS and HIV as not only a, a disease, but also as like this like intense metaphor for something. Um, you got former drag queens like it just made me go anything's possible there there are no uh restrictions on on what you're doing and so i that had a big impact on that first you know that that's the first play of mine that was produced that's not totally true the first play of mine that was produced professionally was a one-man show called the threshing floor that mockingbird theater company did that i played james baldwin in and so that's the first professional play that I had done. And then Miss Martha was several years later 
at Flashpoint Theater Company. Um, but that was the first play with multiple characters I had written. Um, and just like, you know, Kushner's plays with style and history in really interesting ways. So it was great to be thinking about a historical moment while working on this play that was thinking about a historical moment with, with the contemporary eye. Yeah, could you talk about the historical moment you were writing about? Yes, yeah, writing about um, like early 1800s Virginia, you know, you know, not a hop, skip and a jump away from Civil War. Um, Martha Washington, now widowed, afraid to leave her attic be bedroom because she was afraid the enslaved people on Mount Vernon wanted to kill her. Um, <laughs> which every time I say that out loud, I'm like, oh my God, I wrote that. Um, but it's true. She did. She did think that. <laughs> There's letters that people have written where they're like, yeah, I'm a little worried about Martha. She's <laughs> Um And so I, I knew I didn't want to write a play that was set during slavery that had all the hallmarks of that. I knew I, I could start the play in that way, but then I needed to instantly blow that up and give those characters as much agency as possible. Um, and you know, there's there's a little parallel between Tony Kushner writing this really fabulous play about a really dark moment in history, this, this plague that was killing people. Um, there, there's some, not equivalency, but there's some connection between me sort of trying to write a play set during slavery, which is the most awful thing in, in American history among many moments of darkness in American history. Um, in a kind of fabulous uh, theatrical way. So I always say that that's kind of the connection. And I've, I've never met Tony Kushner. Um, deep, deep love for him. But that, that, uh, that experience of working on that play while I was doing uh, his play, um, I think about that a lot. It had a big impact on the kind of playwright that I think I ultimately ended up being. Mm. What were you writing before you started Miss Martha? What were you writing about? You know, mm -hmm. was this a like were you were you thinking in terms of like historical work or personal work? I think early on I was like trying to copy people. So um, you know, I wrote a play that I'm like, okay, this is this is I'm kind of ripping August Wilson off here. Mm. Like this is not really my voice. This is me trying to do August Wilson, or this is me trying to do, you know, Susan Laurie Parks, or you know, this is me trying to do Brett. Remember, I went through a little phrase of like, "Oh, this is so cool! I should use this alienation effect," which yeah, it didn't <laughs> work. It didn't work for the stuff that I was trying to write. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wrote a play early on called By and By that I, I say was my like August Wilson play that again, we'll never see the light of day because it wasn't great. Um, and then in, in, you know, I wrote a play that was like, I took the myth of Osiris and dramatized it and, you know, took a lot of inspiration from it, Susan Laurie Parks and Carol Churchill of like what um, theatricality you can, you know, throw uh, into the story, um, how music functions in the story was something that I discovered in time. But I, you know, that's that's kind of how I taught myself is that I would sort of look at what someone did and go, well, what is, what does my version of that look like? Um, and it really wasn't until Miss Martha that I was able to sort of like synthesize all the things that I had sort of collected from like listening, borrowing from. Um, uh, pantomiming what other playwrights had done and like formed it into something that was distinctly me. Mm -hmm. And that's the play that people paid attention to. Like that's the play that people were like, you know, I sent by and by out and stuff like that. I sent Osiris Redux out, but um, those plays didn't hit because they were like, well, we don't want this. <laughs> August Wilson is doing this very well. We don't need you to do this. But at the time you're like, this isn't August yeah. Wilson, this is me. This is me. Yeah, oh God, yeah. It was a, right? like a real rejection of me. Um, and, you know, but it always made me go like, okay, fine. And here's how I'm going to push. I'm going to push in this way. 
it, it made me, rejection has always made me want to prove the person who rejected me wrong, which is probably not healthy, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, it has always made me go, okay, fine. The next time you meet me and my work, it will be undeniable that you should engage with me as a person. That was always the the engine inside of me. Um, once I realized that I wanted to work in the theater because I realized how intensely competitive it was. And um, I knew the things that I could control. So I put all of my energy into the things that I felt like I could control. So like whenever someone would give me a feedback on a script, I took that to heart. You know, um, I'm not a I'm not a plotty playwright, right? And that that to this day is a thing that is a thing that I am constantly working on, being better and better with. Um, but that's that's something I take very seriously because I've gotten the feedback or I've gotten the response that you know this could have more plot, this could have more like this causes this causes this, um, and so. Uh, I want to ask about this. I want to talk about plot a little bit. You know, I I feel like sometimes uh, I'm I don't love plot, and I, and I don't care, right? Like I'll sometimes I'll be I'll be writing something, and I'm like I just you know what I know there isn't a lot of plot here, and I'm and I'm fine with it. Uh, but I so I wonder what how you feel about this. But I feel like sometimes it's a pressure on knowing that psychologically an audience needs like of the, this to happen and then this to happen and then this to happen to sort of maintain grounding. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that sort of like pressure I feel externally thinking about an audience is what has me writing more plot. Is that like, where are you coming from in that? I mean, I've, um, you know, I'm, I've started to dabble my toe a bit into some TV stuff, which is all plot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly now listening to people uh, talk about well if this happens then this has to happen you know it has to have a progression so that that is starting to have a real impact on how I think about plays um, I've been you know I, I'm a little softer with myself in terms of my relationship to plot because I also think that um, if I focus on the characters wants and needs the plot will start to reveal itself to me. Mm. And then it's usually on the second pass of a play that I'm going, okay, here's here's the plot. Here are the things that happen and, and the things that cause other things to happen. And this is where our protagonist starts. And this is where our protagonist ends the journey. Um, and so I'm just like softer with myself early on. I'm like, you know, write this, get the shape on the, on the page, you know, get the, the general feeling, the character's voice, you know, the distinct character's voices on, on the page. And then you can begin to form what are the the events that, you know, move that person from one place to another. Um, and so plot has become, I like outline now. Like I was never a person that outlined. And now a person that's like, okay, let me just put on this, <laughs> you know and this yeah. notes doc like you know these are the this is the steps to get to this thing that i can see very clearly in my head of where i want this person to go or i want this set of, these set of people to to move through how i want them to move through this play um yeah i'm just i'm just softer with myself about it because i know that it'll come um and i don't need to become uh it shouldn't stop me that i don't know exactly how we get from a to b um i should just start to write and and the c and the d and the e and the f will start to materialize and make themselves clearer to me mm -hmm. and they have up to this point or you know you're working with a, a story that already exists you know that's another reason why i like history i don't have to worry about plot if i'm working on history or if i'm working from hamlet i don't have to worry about plot I can really dig into, you know, who these people are, why their psychology or their history causes them to act the way they do and do the things that they do. 
um, because the story is sorted for me. But I do, you know, I, I definitely want to be a writer um, who can confidently say I have like command of plot. Um, and I'm getting there. I'm not quite there yet, but mm-hmm. I'm getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh- you know, you you said a couple minutes ago you feel like you're all over the place. It's so do I. You listen, I feel like I'm all over the place all the time because my brain, like I'm listening to you, and there are uh, all these other things I want to talk about uh, that you're that you're saying. And so, whatever, we're going to go all over the place, and that's just that's just the way it is. Um, uh, so you brought up you brought up Hamlet, and uh, I I love Hamlet. I don't think I understand Hamlet. I don't know if anybody does, but I love it. And, uh, and I love any kind of, um, any way somebody deals with Hamlet. So I'm curious, I was very curious coming into this conversation to learn if you, if you came to Hamlet because, uh, you had feelings about it one way or the other, right? Like some people will want to deconstruct or change or evolve, uh, an old work because they love it or maybe they had other feelings about it. I'm curious where your starting point was for that. Um, I first encountered Hamlet in college. Um, I was in a directing scene. It was a directing class. I was doing scenes from Shakespeare and I was in that big scene, though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, that big court scene um, when everybody's there. Thelonious is there, Ophelia is there, Laertes is there, Rosencast and Gilgenstern are there, Gertrude, Claudius, Hamlet. Horatio isn't there yet, but he eventually gets there. So like everybody's in that world. Everybody's in that scene. No, yeah, nobody's but died yet. <laughs> nobody's died yet. And I remember working on it and thinking, this is absurd. The, the, what, what they want him to do is absurd be our friend. <laughs> I remember thinking, what? <laughs> this is a tall order to ask of this kid. Um, when I was playing Hamlet and I enjoyed it, but I just stayed thinking about that play. Um, and then I realized that I, I wanted to like play around with some Shakespeare plays and do like contemporary adaptations of them. I, you know, experienced a few other folks do really beautiful ones like um, Peerless, which is the Scottish play, um, which I think is just brilliant um, by Jaheed Park. Um, and so I started to think about what play I would want to mess around with and Hamlet immediately came to mind. Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, because the, the question I get the most in any in interview is why Hamlet? Um, and then the sort of like scholar answer is I like primordial stories, right? Like I like mm-hmm. stories that feel campfirey. And like, you know, when you get down to it, Hamlet is a Cain and Abel story. It's just about Cain and Abel's children. It's not, it, it's, it's, it is exactly the same uh, crisis um, as, as Hamlet. And so, that means it's like utterly recognizable to people no matter where they are in the world. You know, it's just like the the sort of virgin born savior that shows up in many different cultures throughout time. Like there's something we we keep returning to about these kinds of stories. So that's that's the scholarly sort of response to like why Hamlet. But Hamlet is just like as a play so vast so complicated that character you could work on it your whole life and never quite reach the bottom of it um i i put that character right up there with troy maxim and um Mm. you know uh lincoln and booth i put that character right up there with um john proctor i put that character right up there with willie loman in terms of characters that you could you could devote your whole life to trying to figure out what is going on why how do i get from this point of the play to this point of the play um and so that that's a thing that's attractive to me and you know i tried to write a juicy that was equally as or my version of hamlet is juicy um equally as 
enigmatic, uh, confused, contradictory, um, but ultimately, uh, you know, the other thing I love about Hamlet is that he's a great actor. He's um, he's a trickster. Again, going back to sort of like primordial storytelling, he's a trickster that, that doesn't win. You know, he gets caught in his own trap in a way. Yeah, this is why I feel like this is why I feel for Hamlet so much is because um, I don't come at it from a uh, an academic or a scholarly point of view because I don't think I'm that informed on the play. But I return to it and I feel for it because I feel for um, the young person, the young person who uh, is imperfect and is fucking up, is making mistakes sometimes not like usually it's not aware of it and how young people and I just think about myself as a young person and how young people that I work with um can't get out of their own way and they don't know that they need to get out of their own way and so I just like I have so much like empathy for this character and that's really what what connects me to him yeah I mean Shakespeare deals with youth and (laughs) I love the way Shakespeare writes youth you know, you look at Romeo and Juliet, they're 14. Mm. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's talk mm. about getting married when you're 14. Mm. Um, that's, you know, to our contemporary, you know, thinking that's absurd at the time. It probably wasn't that odd for somebody that young to get married because um, they lived a lot sh- like shorter lives. But you know, how they engage with love, how they engage with conflict, how they 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 mess up. You know, Romeo messes up. He does not handle that that moment with Tybalt well. It's just bad. He just doesn't handle it well. You know, um, Hamlet could go to his mom and say, Ma, which is why Juicy does that. Ma, this is happening. <laughs> I was like, there was a point in the writing of it. I was like, he has to do the thing that I would do. Ma, there's a problem. And I I, I can't sort it out by myself. I need your help just to help me sort it out. Um, but Hamlet doesn't do that. He does the, the thing that young people do all the time, which is fall, <laughs> fail, make a bad mistake that you can't come back from. Yeah, I mean... what is more identifiable as a human being than something like that? Right. Yeah, I agree. When you were writing fat ham, did you like, you know, cause this play, you know, obviously one it's going to Broadway, right. It won you a Pulitzer. Uh, Not that you're not that when you're writing anything, you're like, this is going to go to Broadway and this is going to win this major award but where were you when you were writing it like were you having thoughts of like oh, i'm on to something or this is this is working in some way like think like the work i've done for the years leading up to this kind of coalescing in this play yeah um i i think um the first audience that i think of when i'm writing is a philly audience and if you've ever been to a show in Philly, you know that they are incisive, they are smart, they do not suffer fools. Um, <laughs> they they want it to move, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't want it to sort of languish in things. Um, they've seen a lot of theater, you know. They've seen a wide range of theater. And so they're very shrewd audience members. And so I'm always thinking about them. And I was, at that time, that's the majority of my productions had been world premiering in Philadelphia. In fact, Fat Ham world premiered in Philadelphia at the Wilma in the form of a film. Um, and had the pandemic not happened, it would have premiered on the stage at the Wilma. Um, and so my ambition has always been, how do I engage the people around me um in the city that i live in you know um is is this play gonna you know reach folks um in in philly um and it's not really until 
um I don't know, like when we started working on it for the film version, I was like, oh, this is going to meet more people than I'm used to a play meeting, you know, in and, and its first like go. And so that made me think about the play slightly different. It didn't change the play drastically because I was like, what? I think it's pretty good, you know, but never was I going like, oh, this is this is the play that we'll go to Broadway or this is the play that's going to win a Pulitzer. In fact, when the theater, the Wilma was like, do you want to submit the play? And I was like, that's how it works. <laughs> and they were like, yes, it is. That's how it works. I was like, wow, I did not, <laughs> did not know that. I did not know that that was an application process. Okay. And even with that, I was like, well, it it might be nice for the folks who do that to know who I am. And that's kind of what I was hoping would come of that was um, that I could potentially be in the conversation with, with other people who, who saw themselves at that, at that place. And I, at, by that time I was, it wasn't about like, Oh, do I think this play is good? Do I think I'm any good? I, I knew that I was a good writer and I knew that the play was good. Um, I just wasn't thinking about it in in that respect because I had been so intensely focused on like, I would love for my play to be at the art and I'd love for my play to be at the woman, like trying to make sure that the, the theaters in Philly knew who I was and was interested in my work. Um, but honestly, like by the time Fat Ham came along, I'd been doing pretty, pretty well in the regionals with Kill Move and with White, those two plays had been having really great productions in the other parts of the country. And so I kind of thought, well, that's that's where I'm going to live. You know, that's kind of where my playwright, and then I was really, I was teaching at a university, still am teaching at a university. I felt really good about um, that career. You know, I was like, this is beautiful. I am, you know, people in, uh, in California are seeing Kill Move, people, in Chicago or seeing white people in, you know, Florida or seeing, you know, Moon Man Walk. Um, that that felt like what you, I, what you were supposed to do. And it felt really good to me. And and what's happening now feels really good, but it does feel a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm catching up to this. This is moving faster than, than I ever thought I would move. Um, hmm. I'm, you know, incredibly grateful. Very happy that it's happening. I'm glad that more people get to see the play. Something uh, I'm sure you were aware of when when your play was announced as the Pulitzer, I saw all over social media the Philly folks coming out <laughs> and with so much pride. I thought that was um, like celebrating you as Philadelphia's right. Like that was amazing yeah. to me and every corner of, of theater, social media, they all came out and, uh, and that was amazing. That felt beautiful. Um, Cause I, you know, I made a decision early on in my career. I was like, I'm going to stay in Philly. Um, I, I found some of my closest collaborators in Philly. I fell in love. I got married in Philadelphia. Like it's um, it's a place that feels like home now. Um, and so to see that community of artists and audience members sort of go, he's he's one of us. We we're so proud of him. Um, was really touching. Um. And I'll never forget it. Like I remember someone tweeted, like I once uh, helped James at an escape the room, and it was really nice. And I was like, yes, my my mom would be so <laughs> proud of the fact that the thing that the person remembered about me was that I was nice. Um, mm. But yeah, it just it it just really meant a lot. This place means a lot to me, um, and you know. I'm I'm hoping as I as I continue on that I can continue to to be a you know a, a person that the town can be proud of and um I, I love it I love it here. You mentioned earlier that um, 
you're dabbling. I can't remember the word you used in television. Mm. Uh, is there like a, uh, it feels off for a lot of playwrights, like a, a tractor beam pull into television because it pays so well. I mean, that's not mm -hmm. the only reason obviously to, to do that work, but, um, how is that pull impacting you? And you feel like it's pull, it, it could pull you away from theater. No, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to be pulled away from theater. Um, I love, love it too much. I love the, the in-person, um, that is the theater. Um, yeah, it, the pull is strong. <laughs> it's, <laughs> It's it's very strong. It's a different skill set. So I'm you know I'm learning a ton. Um, but I, you know I always try to treat things that I do that are a little disparate. Um, I try to have them feed each other. So like when I was acting and I was writing, I was like, okay, what what can my acting process right now do to make me a better writer? And when I'm in the rehearsal room as a playwright, how do I let the work of this room make me a better director. Um, and so with the TV stuff, it's like, well, how do I use this opportunity to help me think about my craft as a playwright differently? And and then it has been doing that, you know, um, I was at the show I'm working on right now, I told the showrunner the other night we were on a call and I was like, I think about plot and outlining more in my own work than I did before I started working with you. And he comes from theater too. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably like a thing that's going to continue to get stronger for you. Just be thinking more and more about that. But I'd also don't want to lose the like whimsy of mm -hmm. writing something that you know is specific to. And so what's challenging me to do is like, we write the thing that has to happen in a theater. Now the challenge of being a playwright for me is write the thing that you cannot, it cannot be done on screen. You have to do this in person in a theater with a live audience. And that's really tricky because you can pretty much do anything on screen. <laughs> like you can mm -hmm. have aliens, you can like, you can do anything on screen. And so what does it mean to write something that has to happen in real time with people in the space being witness to it? Um, I think that's going to be the next sort of leg of the journey for me. Mm. You know, when you write for television, uh, you're writing, you know, these these characters that exist in this world that's that's, you know, that has been built and you're collaborating with others and writing the stories for these characters in this world. Do you are you able to or do you even think about um, your Philadelphia audience? like speaking to them through your television writing? I do, I do. I think about, you know, I, when I'm doing that work, I'm mostly thinking about my family mm. because, you know, that, that, that's suddenly like, they get included in that audience too, if it's something on TV. So it's like, well, I don't know my mom understand this. Yeah. Like, well, my, you know, if my grandmother was watching this, would she go now, wait, what, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I try to think uh, about, I try to think like people who watch dramatic literature, not people who make dramatic literature, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I try to think like a viewer and I watch a lot of TV, like it's an embar embarrassing amount of TV. And I always have, even from when I was very young, I watched a lot of television. Um, because it, you know, in the same way that I think plays connect the people who are in the audience together watching it, like getting to work the next day and like, did you watch House of the Dragon last night? Okay, great. So we can talk about it. Like that, I love. You know, it that's a real a real power that the form has, and so you know, I I try to think as as much like my viewer self uh, as I can and less as my like story, you know, focused dramatic writer, like what is going to move people? What is, and also, you know, the other thing I try to think about when I'm doing things for TV is how do I talk to the actor? 
Like if I know that I'm writing this line and this bit of stage direction for a black woman, all right, I can say this and I know she'll get it. Mm. Even if the, the white executive doesn't get it, right? I know that, you know, when it lands into Nicole Bahari's hands, oh my God, knock on wood, I would love that. Um, <laughs> she's going to go, oh, yeah, great, I know how to do that. You know, like how do you whisper through the script to the person who's got to perform it as well, you know? Um, and TV is, you know, a writer is, uh, it's, it's a writer's medium. It, it really um, depends on that sort of conversation between the writer and, and the production itself. So those are the, the things I'm thinking about when I'm working in those rooms is like, how, do, how does a viewer view this? How, you know, how do they engage with it versus someone who's like always thinking about story? And then, um, and how do I talk to the people that actually have to like, say the language like how do i say mm. to them okay girl it's like this without writing hey girl it's like this mm -hmm. <laughs> so thinking thinking back to that that kid who was playing in the giant rock in your grandma's backyard or even or even 10 years ago when you were really uh starting to write for real uh what do you think is uh, would be most surprising to to those younger versions of you where you are today mm. i i think i would be surprised that i live in a city <laughs> <laughs> um you know when i was young i always saw my life as being a little agrarian for some reason i just was like oh I'll like i'll live with a lot of land and like walk places and maybe wear cowboy boots. I don't know why that was how I, I you know what? That's probably what my retirement is going to look like. <laughs> um, I think I would be surprised um, that, uh, that writing is the thing that has uh, launched me further than anything else I've I've ever done. I, I think I would be sort of bowled over by that. Um, I think I would be utterly shocked that I was on Broadway. Utterly shocked. Like, what? Because <laughs> like I said, I did grow up, I grew up with, I, I knew what Broadway was when mm -hmm. I was very young, but it was it was like so distant. You know, um, so I, I think I would be really surprised by those two things. I probably would be really surprised that I was married. Um, I know that I would be surprised that I was married because I think even at a very young age, I knew I was gay and I knew that wasn't something that was probably going to be able to happen. And so I would be really shocked by that. Mm. Um, I think I would be shocked that I live as far away from my family as I do. Um, because I grew up and my family is still very much concentrated in that part of North Carolina and only me and my aunt Terry have sort of left and live and live in other places. And I think, you know, she's retiring soon. I think she's going to probably move back to North Carolina too. So I think I would be surprised that I, I live in a city and I live in a city that I have to fly to get home mm. quickly, you know, um, I thought I would end up somewhere like Atlanta or Charlotte at the furthest. And, and now I live in, in Philadelphia and, um, and it's like home. So I think those are things that would surprise me the most. Thank you to James for the great talk. His Pulitzer-winning play, Fat Ham, is in previews right now on Broadway, so get yourself there and see this masterwork. If you are in, near, or around Philadelphia, his play, Abandon, opens at Theater Exile, April 27th. Thank you to Billy Cook for helping set this conversation up. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent and American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. This episode was produced by me, edited by associate producer K.J. Jarbo. Music on this episode is from Popoy. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. 
Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Apples in Winter by Jennifer Fawcett. This is such a moving and theatrical solo play. It's one of those great plays I wish I had written because it's got everything I love in a play. Go see it or read it if you can. I know there's a production of it happening right now at Center Stage in Greenville, South Carolina. 